You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's April 24th. As usual, we have a lot to cover today on the COVID-19 pandemic. But first, let's discuss some new RAND research on another important issue, gun policy. In 2018, we released the initial findings from the RAND Gun Policy in America initiative, one of the largest studies ever conducted on this subject. This week, we launched a major update to the project, highlighting new evidence about the effects of U.S. gun laws. Here are four key takeaways. First, our researchers found new evidence about stand-your-ground laws, which are also referred to by some as shoot-first laws. These policies remove the duty to retreat before using force and claiming self-defense, assuming that safe retreat is an option. Brand experts found that there is now supportive evidence, our strongest evidence rating, that stand-your-ground laws are associated with an increase in firearm homicides. And there is moderate evidence, our second-highest rating, that stand-your-ground laws may increase total homicides. Second, we found new evidence about waiting periods, which prevent gun buyers from taking possession of new weapons immediately upon purchase. There is moderate evidence that waiting periods reduce rates of both firearm suicide and total homicide. Third, while the U.S. still has the highest gun ownership rate in the world, ownership has been declining over the last three decades. RAND researchers estimate that the gun ownership rate among U.S. households has fallen from 45% in 1980 to 36% in the year 2000 to 32% in 2016. While this national trend is clear, it's important to note that trends vary state by state. Fourth and finally, we should mention that there's still a lot we just don't know about gun laws. RAND's Andrew Morale, who leads the project, said... With few exceptions, there remains a surprisingly limited base of rigorous scientific evidence concerning the effects of many commonly discussed gun policies. Morale and the research team will continue to assess the available scientific evidence on gun laws, seeking to establish a shared set of facts and ultimately to support the development of fair and effective gun policies. To learn more about the RAND Gun Policy in America initiative, visit rand.org slash gun policy. Now let's turn our attention to the pandemic and, in particular, what the outbreak could mean for the future of schools across the U.S. Whenever schools are able to reopen, they will likely have to make changes so that teachers, staff, and students can practice social distancing and continue to prevent the spread of COVID-19. That's according to RAND's Heather Schwartz, who notes that this process will be much more complicated than just placing desks six feet apart. For example, schools may need to enact requirements for hygiene practices, like wearing masks, hand washing, and disinfecting surfaces. They may also need to adjust schedules in order to stagger activities such as meals, recess, and hallway transitions. Schools will also need clear ways to communicate to staff and to parents about what exactly the social distancing practices are, why they're important, and who is involved. But Schwartz says there is some good news. 
The current trial-by-fire transition to online learning that schools have been dealing with means that if it's necessary to shift to a combination of face-to-face and remote instruction in the future, it will be more feasible and less daunting for schools to do so. But she also emphasizes that schools will need guidance on social distancing strategies, perhaps from a federal agency. With guidelines and support from the federal level, educators will be able to focus on what they do best, teaching students. Religious congregations have long played critical roles in providing mental health support, food assistance, and other social services to communities. Faith-based organizations are particularly essential to helping low-income communities, certain racial, ethnic minority groups and immigrants, older people, and other vulnerable groups. And as the battle against COVID-19 continues, the need for support services is only becoming more dire. According to Catherine DeRose, a RAND researcher and an Episcopal deacon, and Reverend Michael Mata, faith-based organizations should be seen as important partners in caring for vulnerable people during the pandemic. Coordination between religious groups and local public health officials will be an essential part of providing this support, they say. And developing these partnerships now could help lay the groundwork for closer relationships between local governments and faith communities in the future. What if Hurricane Katrina had made landfall during a global pandemic? According to RAND experts, this is the scenario that emergency managers need to prepare for today. There are many issues to consider. First, emergency response systems are already at capacity or overwhelmed. A hurricane would exacerbate that strain. This is why response plans should be reassessed now. For example, planners should consider how workforce shortages, delays in material and money, and insufficient hospital capacity could affect hurricane response. Second, evacuating and sheltering would have extra complications. The pandemic makes clearly communicating exactly who should evacuate even more important. Those in the storm surge zone should go, while others should be encouraged to shelter in place and prepare for wind, rain, and power outages. And those who do evacuate should be screened for symptoms of the coronavirus and be separated from others if they test positive. It's also important to consider how to separate higher-risk individuals, for example, older people or those who are immunocompromised, from large groups in shelters. Third, household stockpiles of food and supplies may be even more critical than normal to get through the hurricane season. People have already been stockpiling, sometimes to the extreme, due to COVID-19, so some families could use their existing stockpiles for hurricane preparation as well. But it's also important to remember that stocking up on supplies is an equity issue. Lower income and more vulnerable populations might have even greater needs now, and fewer resources to meet them. Fourth, deciding how to deploy emergency workers would be challenging. Hurricane response involves many people, police, firefighters, and search and rescue organizations, of course, but also utility companies responsible for getting critical infrastructure back up and running, and incident managers who coordinate response efforts. Strategies are already being developed to help minimize disease spread among these workers. Having protections in place will be just as important during a hurricane response. Fifth, and finally, there's the question of how to help the economy recover over the long term. 
Disaster recovery plays out over the course of months, years, and decades. And with an economy that's already battered by the pandemic, this process could take even longer after a storm. That means that the government may need to play an even more active role to assist with hurricane recovery. The Atlantic hurricane season starts on June 1st, so assessing these issues and preparing for them now is vital, say our experts. Failing to do so could be a recipe for disaster. Many factors affect how people develop COVID-19, including sex and gender. According to RAND experts, it's important to test and report on these differences now as part of building a strong evidence base about the pandemic. To overlook this data would be to, quote, follow the dangerous path of prior clinical research, allowing mistaken and potentially deadly misunderstandings based on the failure to consider sex and gender from the start. One example of this mistake happening in the past concerns heart disease, which is, perhaps surprisingly, the leading cause of death for women in the U.S. Even though women's heart attack symptoms often differ from the classical male symptoms, clinical trials for cardiovascular disease enroll fewer women than men, and only a minority of these studies report outcomes by sex and gender. Funding agencies have an opportunity to ensure that the clinical understanding of COVID-19 does not follow this same flawed path. By focusing on sex and gender, along with age and health risk factors, clinicians can gain knowledge that helps in the diagnosis and care of both men and women, and for the benefit of everyone. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast. See you next week.